really glad we canceled this party. Good. You are on. Great. We recorded that, Jim. So the the internet is forever. They're expecting. Uh, all right. Uh, Habakkuk chapter two is where we're going to start. Um, we made it through verse 1, actually, of chapter 2 last week, but we're going to have some overlap. I'm going to start in verse 1. It seems like a very good place to start. And we will read the, uh, the chapter in its entirety. It's, um, it's a doozy. we got some classic Old Testament fire and brimstone prophet stuff here, so buckle up. Here we go. Verse 1, Habakkuk chapter 2. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Indeed, because he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man, and he does not stay at home, because he enlarges his desire as hell. And he is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. Will not all these take up a proverb against him and a taunting riddle against him and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his, how long? And to him who loads himself with many pledges. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken who oppress you? And you who become their booty, because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and of all who dwell in it. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples and sin against your soul. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the timbers will answer it. Woe to him who builds a town of bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor to feed the fire, and nations weary themselves in vain? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk that you may look on his nakedness. You are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you, and utter shame will be on your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will cover you, and the plunder of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood and the violence of the land of the city and of all who dwell on it. What profit is the image that its maker should carve it? The molded image, a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols. Woe to him who says to wood, Awake, to silent stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Uh, Lord God, we are not in a place to come to your word and decide what we like and what we don't like, but we confess we're guilty of this most times. Where we're not here to judge your word or the author of it. Uh, we are here to place ourselves under the authority of your word. We believe that you mean what you say. We believe that 
what you say is true. Uh, and what we see here is, is a God who, who judges evil, um, who judges with justice, who takes into account uh, the wickedness that is so offensive to you. And so we want to be humble before you coming to this text. Um, we pray that, that you, Holy Spirit, would gently apply your word to your church. And that we, like Habakkuk, upon receiving these messages of, of judgment even, would, would still end in a place of praise and even joy. God, we praise you, the God of our salvation. And it's for your glory that we are here gathered around your word to receive good things. Amen. 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 So that was fun. Uh, let's review a little bit. Um, Habakkuk is a man of God, a prophet who is living during a time of moral decline, political decline, just all the structures of society are crumbling around him. It's an age of lawlessness, where even the laws that they do have can't be enforced, which is fine because no one wants to obey them anyway. It's, it's a downward spiral, circling the drain. It's a time of destruction rather than creativity, violence, rioting, injustice, and oppression. And that's the good guys. Uh, that, that's where we started in chapter 1. And Habakkuk has been praying about this for a long time. He prays in chapter 1, how long, O Lord? And God answers, not much longer. Now Habakkuk had a few problems. Habakkuk's first problem was that God wasn't doing anything about the evil that Habakkuk saw in the world. But then God says, I am going to do something about it. I'm going to judge it. I'm going to punish evil. And you'll never guess how. God tells him, you wouldn't believe it if I told you, so I'm going to have to show you. So he gives Habakkuk a vision <coughs> and shows him that he, God, is going to raise up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, same people, a bitter and hasty nation. And they are going to come and destroy the land you love, Habakkuk. They're going to come and destroy your neighborhood. Jerusalem will be sacked, it will be burned, the temple will be destroyed. And God gives Habakkuk this vision of destruction. And now Habakkuk has another problem. He says, God, you couldn't possibly use an evil people like Babylon. And in chapter 2, we see how evil they are. You couldn't use them to accomplish your will. You couldn't use a nation less righteous than us to judge us. Like, we're not that bad, right? And this seems kind of strange to us, but... You know, that he, his first problem was that God wasn't dealing with sin, and then his second problem is that God deals with sin. And, and, and we're, we, we do see the same kind of arguments play out, even in our own heads. You know, we ask, if God is good, how could he allow evil? And then we hear about hell. And we say, if God is good, how could he punish evil? Do you see the tension? This is something like what Habakkuk is dealing with. These are the problems that exist in the book of Habakkuk. Now, Habakkuk doesn't really deal with the question, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Habakkuk doesn't know any good people. Uh, but the, the, you know, he hasn't met any. Uh, but the question he does have, especially after God says, I'm going to use Babylon to judge you. He says, God, if you are who you say you are, why are things the way they are? Habakkuk's puzzle is in reconciling his experience with what he knows about God's character. Now, we, we looked forward to the end last week. We're starting with the end in mind and saw that Habakkuk doesn't end with all the answers. He does not get all the answers to all of his questions, but he ends with all the joy. And even the first section of the book, chapter 1 through uh, 1 verse 1 to 2 verse 1, 
It doesn't conclude with a solution, but it does end with uh, a picture of a relationship. Chapter 2, verse 1, where we ended last week and begin this week, is the, the fulcrum. It's the pivot of the book. It's where we find balance. Chapter 2, verse 1 shows us Habakkuk's, Habakkuk's method of dealing with all this unexplainable, uncomfortable conflict that exists within his soul. And his solution is meet with God. He sets himself up to see what God will say when he is corrected. And we pointed out that when he fights with God, he plans on losing, right? <clears throat> to say that this is a book about the problem of evil doesn't really paint a full picture. Uh, a, a book about the problem of evil, and many exist, those might be very well put together, like a research paper and an academic journal with lots of good arguments and thorough footnotes. That's not Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a book about a relationship. Habakkuk says, I want an answer. But what he knows he needs is a moment with the Lord. And he sets aside the time, and he takes that moment, and he waits to hear from the Lord. You know, we, we say often, I, I want an answer, I want, I want an explanation, and God says, I want you. And we say, how does this all work? And God says, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. That's what he told Habakkuk, right? But what Habakkuk needed more than an explanation was a moment with the Lord. Now, last week we drew the comparison between Habakkuk's problem and, and Job's problem that both books share in many themes and structures. In both cases, we have complaints from men who would seek the Lord, who want a face-to-face -face meeting with God. And in both occasions, we have God show up and correct them and give them a full perspective. And in both accounts, the one with all the questions is, in the end, satisfied. But in both cases, we see that the questions they asked were never actually answered. I'm sure you've noticed that at the end of the book of Job, Job asks, you know, Job has been asking why God, he never gets the answer to that question. But he does receive peace. Habakkuk, when we see him in chapter 1, has, has questions. He has lots of questions. And he knows that he needs a moment with the Lord. He knows that when he's, when he's going to wrestle with God, he's planning on losing. The last bit of review from last week, Habakkuk's name, I pointed out, means to embrace. There's actually two possible definitions of Habakkuk to embrace or maybe he's named after a garden plant. <laughs> Those aren't two different things. It's a, he's a vine. Okay? He's a viney little plant. A plant that clings to whatever is close by in order to give itself something to hold on to, to lean on as it grows upward. That's who Habakkuk is. He clings to the Lord like a vine on a fence and he goes to the high ground. Now in chapter 2, we have, uh, we, have, we have the word of God again. The Lord speaks to Habakkuk on the rampart, on the wall. This may be a really simple message you can take from this. It may or may not fit. Uh, if you feel like God is silent, this may or may not be you. And you don't hear from him. You don't know his will. And you've got questions that aren't being answered or addressed. May I suggest that you need to take out some time for the specific purpose of listening to him. Take the retreat. Uh, turn off the phone. Sit still. And listen and seek the Lord. He is kind. He does honor our intentions sometimes, even though we know he doesn't have to. Take some time. See what he says. What he says to Habakkuk is essentially a pronouncement of doom on the Chaldeans. Habakkuk's question, his second question, was why would you use them to judge us? You wouldn't do that, would you? And God's answer is an implied, uh, yeah, yeah, I would, but don't worry. I'm going to judge them too. It's a weird answer. 
But God's final point is that Babylon won't end up on the top. In fact, Babylon has never been on the top. God doesn't share his glory. He's always been the king, no matter who reigns on earth. In the end, it will only and always be God on the throne. Now, in the midst, in the midst of these pronouncements of, of judgments and, and woes, there are three important truths that stand out, three verses that uh, you, you absolutely have to see as anchors to the rest of the chapter and, and even the book. And there are the three verses in here that aren't just totally depressing, okay? Uh, verse 4 of, of chapter 2, especially in the last line, the just shall live by his faith. Hopefully that's a familiar passage to you. Next, chapter 2, verse 14. It says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. This is a bright spot in the chapter. It's kind of right there in the middle. It's the midst of all the gloomy judgment that is being doled out to an extremely wicked people. In the midst of that, the Lord is sure to point out, this is not the end. I do not leave things dead. I resurrect the dead. I do not create emptiness for its own sake. I create empty spaces in order to be the thing that fills the space. I'm not destroying these evil kingdoms so that there are no kingdoms. I'm destroying them to make way for my kingdom. It's a message of hope for someone like Habakkuk who had just seen a vision of the destruction of Jerusalem. It's a message of hope for anyone who is shocked at the decline of their own civilization. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And finally, I want to draw your attention to verse 20, the final verse in the chapter, as the third sort of anchor in this chapter. It says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Now, once again, this is very similar to God's speech in Job. After he speaks to Job and declares his power, Job says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. It's quiet down. This verse provides another hinge perfectly placed between chapter 2 and chapter 3. And it's somewhat ironic. The verse says, let all the earth keep silence. And then there's another chapter of someone not keeping silent. That's Habakkuk. <laughs> Habakkuk praises God, which is great. Um, but when you realize that God will have the last word, it absolutely has a major effect on your words. And we see that chapter 3 for Habakkuk is very different than chapter 1. But that's for next week. Habakkuk's words will be changed from complaints into praise. When he realizes that the Lord is king, the Lord is in his holy temple, and no one, not Habakkuk, not Nebuchadnezzar, not you, not anyone, will be able to say or do anything that will remove God from his throne. So with these three anchors, uh, these three points, let's go back to the beginning of the chapter and work our way through. In verse 2, the Lord says to Habakkuk, write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak, and it will not lie, though it tarries. Wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Habakkuk's time with God was fruitful. The Lord speaks. But Habakkuk's time with God wasn't just for Habakkuk. It wasn't just to make Habakkuk feel better about things. It was for other people. He says, this is, I'm gonna, what I'm going to show you, you need to write down, because there's personal application for a whole lot of people. The person who hears what you have to say will have... I have to act on it. Now, a minute ago, I suggested that a possible, a possible solution for a hypothetical problem that you may or may not have experienced, that you don't seem to be hearing from God, you know, perhaps you should make the time to listen. Make an empty space for him to fill. But maybe, maybe you know, that doesn't quite fit. Maybe you do. Maybe you have the good devotional habits. 
but there's still a sort of block and you don't feel like you're receiving from the Lord. May I suggest that you've already heard what you need to hear, but you haven't shared what you're supposed to share. There's very, there's very, very little that, that you receive from the Lord that he doesn't intend to be shared in one way or another. Um, and he, he doesn't intend for you to be a stagnant pond. There has to be some outflow. Now Habakkuk receives a word from the Lord, but he has to share his vision. And God says, you need to write this down so that we can pass it on. And fast, they need to run who read it. The one who reads it needs to run. There's going to be a very clear application to this message. And God wants Habakkuk to know that when people hear his record of the vision, there will be action required. And it's again interesting and somewhat unexpected that the ultimate action at the end of Habakkuk, we've seen the end, is praise God. If everything's empty, if everything is terrible, if there's no money in the bank or fruit on the trees or grain in the barns, praise God. That's the message that they run with in the end. After this really fun section about how great Babylon is, which I'm not avoiding. We're going to get there. In verse 3, God says, this will really happen. He's saying, I'm not just speaking in metaphor. I've appointed a time for the fulfillment of these prophecies. It will happen. Habakkuk won't live to see it, which is important why he should write it down and pass it on to the next generation. But it will happen. Now, as Isaiah said famously, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Or as Jesus said, heaven and earth may pass away, but my word will by no means pass away. And the Lord is saying, you're going to see Jerusalem fall. And the next generation will see Babylon fall. And everything I say will stay true. The first word that God says with this absolute certainty that he wants Habakkuk to write down for the people to run with is this. Verse 4. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. The book of Habakkuk is quoted three times in the New Testament, which is impressive for a three-chapter minor prophet. It's quoted in Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and Hebrews 10.38. It is this passage, Habakkuk 2, verse 4, last half, that is quoted all three times. The just shall live by faith. Now, interestingly enough, each of the three New Testament quotations emphasize a different portion of the phrase. Romans, at the beginning, is concerned with the nature of justification and what it means to be just. You can almost hear Paul's emphasis, the just shall live by faith, by his faith. The passage in Galatians where we find this quotation is about the Christian life. Uh, about living by faith rather than by works. How the just live. The just live by faith. It wasn't just a one-time thing and then you return to legalism. That's what all Galatians is about, right? Hebrews chapter 11 is the hall of faith. And in Hebrews 10.38, paving the way for that chapter, the emphasis is, of course, on the preeminence of faith. The just shall live by his faith. Now these, these words do have the power to completely change your life. We know from history that these words have the power to change the world. They changed Martin Luther's life and his world and yours. It is no accident that we come to this verse on Reformation Day. This, this verse, quite literally, is the phrase that started the Protestant Reformation. Luther writes about this specific passage. He says this, before those words broke upon my mind, I hated God and was angry with him because no uh, because not content with frightening us sinners by the law and by the miseries of life, 
he still further increased our torture by the gospel. But when, by the Spirit of God, I understood those words, the just shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith, then I felt born again like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. This passage saved uh, an Augustinian monk. Let him meet Jesus. Faith. This becomes Paul's repeated theme, of course. And Paul quotes this verse twice in in, uh, Romans and Galatians. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Picks up the theme in Ephesians. And not of works, lest any man may boast. You know the passage. In both Ephesians 2 and Habakkuk 2, faith is contrasted with boasting. They're seen as opposites, antithetical to one another. Remember, the prophet's problem was that, yes, while Judah was bad, Babylon is worse. And God is saying, stop keeping track of things like that. You keep your eyes on me. Saying that you've done the right thing and now you can be proud, that's the opposite of faith. Comparing yourself with others, even in the way that Habakkuk did, that's not faith. Pride here is the opposite of faith. And while most of chapter 2 is about the Chaldeans, who were proud and lifted up, there would have been a bit of correction for Habakkuk himself here as well. Habakkuk, who had the line in chapter 1, that you, know, you wouldn't use them to judge a nation more righteous than they, right? That's not faith. The just live by faith. If you were righteous, you'd have your eyes fixed on me. And once again, Habakkuk will not receive all the answers he's after, but he will end in a place of faith. Faith is, as you know, not necessarily knowing answers. It's knowing the God who knows the answers. Now from verse 5 all the way to verse 19, we get some classical Old Testament prophecy here. God declares several woes on the Chaldeans. By doing this, he is telling Habakkuk, yes, I know how to deal with sin. I know how to deal with their sin as well. You don't need to worry about that. I know how to deal with it. By allowing Babylon to continue, and even by using Babylon for his purposes, God was by no means excusing their wickedness. In the verses here that we read, we get a very clear image of a terrible people. The the Chaldeans were awful. In no one's imagination could they be mistaken for the good guys. However, while it's extremely clear that these prophecies are about Babylon, Habakkuk would have been keenly aware that the sins for which Babylon would be judged are strikingly similar to the sins of Judah that are being judged by the Babylonians. Ouch. In these verses, God condemns Babylon for their abuse of power and greed and violence and idolatry. And many of these things are the exact things that the prophets in Israel were preaching against to the citizens in Israel, in Judah, in Jerusalem. Look at verse 5. The first thing God has against the Babylonians is that they're drunkards, which he brings up a few times in the passage. He transgresses by wine. Well, Isaiah had been warning Judah about their alcohol problem for more than 100 years years ago. Not for 100 years, but 100 years ago, Isaiah had said, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. That was Israel's problem a century ago. And by the time Jeremiah comes after Habakkuk, it doesn't seem like it had improved any. The next thing God says about Babylon is that they're greedy. Indeed, because he transgresses by wine, he's a proud man, and he does not stay at home, because he enlarges his desire as hell, and he is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. Now, this is a description of the Chaldeans. They had a thirst for power that couldn't be quenched. They would never be satisfied. 
I'm going to read verses 6 through 8 from the ESV. Now it gives a good translation. It says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities all, cities and all who dwell in them. Um, it, it's, this is a, a, a woe on Babylon. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own and loads himself with pledges. Now, okay, so that's, that's Babylon. But the last two kings of Judah were known for doing this same thing. Jeremiah speaks against Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin and, and talks about the, the, and the, the, the problem of their greediness. And God is saying, Babylon here will never be satisfied. Does that sound like anyone you might know? And Babylon will never be satisfied, which means they'll never be at peace, which means they will never know when to stop, and they will overextend themselves and fall under their own weight, as empires so often do. Right now it looks like they're really successful, but all they're doing is making a lot of enemies for themselves down the road. In addition to the problem Judah uh, of Judah being judged by Babylon, many in Habakkuk's day would simply have a hard time even imagining a nation as strong as Babylon ever coming to an end. It was just so strong. It was the strongest nation that the earth had ever seen. But all nations come to an end. There's only one kingdom that is from everlasting to everlasting, and it's not Babylon. And God is telling Habakkuk, you speak to the Babylonians and to anyone who looks like them, this kind of lust for power, this greed for possessions, it leads to debt, and all debts will be paid. And Habakkuk wouldn't live to see this end, but God told him, this is for an appointed time, and everything I say comes to pass. Nations rise and fall at the will of God. And nations will be judged. Habakkuk is learning something here. Just because the wicked prosper doesn't mean their prospering is permanent. Now the next woe here in verse 9 says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Now here God is taking issue with the one who, in their greed and covetousness, sets up a safe place for themselves at the expense of the lives of the innocent. Okay, the setting his nest on high is the idea that the, you know, the, the powerful Babylonians could just buy their way to safety or kill their way to safety where none of the problems of the world can touch them. And Paul says, while people are saying there's peace and security, then suddenly destruction <clears throat> will come upon them. And that's for another time, but it would apply to Babylon as well. Jesus tells the parable in Luke 12, 16 through 21, about the rich man who feels like he's bought his way to safety. He bought his way to security, decides that the best thing to do now with his wealth, is to build bigger barns so he can store more of his wealth in them. And then he dies. And God calls him a fool. The Babylonians were operating under the same delusion. Yes, from anyone's perspective on earth, they were the richest, the most powerful, the strongest <coughs> army ever. And Babylonians knew it. But they were operating under a delusion. They were accomplishing their own glory at the expense of their souls. Verse 10 says, you forfeited your life. Which is what Jesus says about the rich man buying bigger barns. 
This idea of the stone crying out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork answering is like God saying, you thought there were no witnesses. You know, they, they think they killed anyone who can accuse them and, and they're safe, but the walls have eyes. The sins they committed will be known. God sees injustices that no one else sees. God is reminding Habakkuk here that there will be ultimate justice. It, may, it might not seem like it at first, but even if there are no survivors to say of the evil things that the Chaldeans did, the story will be told and justice will be served perfectly. In verse 12, the Lord says, Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor to feed the fire? The nations weary themselves in vain? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Okay, so this is about Babylon, right? They're building towns with blood and founding cities on iniquity. That's, he's, he's talking about violence. Violence is mentioned. Violence was the very thing that Habakkuk was praying to God about concerning his own people. Saying there's violence and no one will stop it. And God says, yeah, you look a lot like Babylon right now. It's not a good look on you. This is all prophecy about Babylon, but on a much smaller scale, Israel was guilty of these same sins that Babylon will be judged for. Look back at chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 2 and 3 says, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear, even cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. That was in Israel. Judah was the violent place. When Habakkuk looked at Jerusalem, he saw iniquity and plundering and violence and strife and contention. That sounds a lot like what the stuff we're reading about in chapter 2, but it's not. It's right there at home. This, again, addresses Habakkuk's question, how can you use them to judge a nation more righteous than they? Now God is describing Babylon with the same terms that Habakkuk used in describing his own neighborhood. The contrast now between the two nations doesn't seem quite so extreme to Habakkuk. And just like Babylon will fall in fire, the city will be burned. God says that Babylon is building up an empire that will end in the same way. They labor to feed the fire. The nations weary themselves in vain, saying all they're doing is collecting fuel for their own demise. Psalm 127 puts it beautifully when it says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. God says, when I want to build a house, it's built. It's built right. When I want the house to burn, it will burn. All of Babylon, all of Nebuchadnezzar's military wisdom and strength cannot stop me from bringing the whole thing down with a word. These are harsh judgments. Which, which makes verse 14 shine. Now a lot of prophets are like this. Long passages about destruction, doom, and judgment. And then you have a glimmer of hope. A moment of clarity. God says, yes, judgment will happen. But judgment is not the end. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Babylon will be removed, but God has no intention of leaving that space empty. When Nebuchadnezzar's armies come and take the citizens of Judah captive, one of the captives taken to, uh, from Jerusalem to Babylon is a young man named Daniel. Daniel becomes an advisor to the king. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about a statue, head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet of iron, mixture of clay. And when, and when Nebuchadnezzar, after this, Nebuchadnezzar sees a stone not cut with hands, roll down a hill, destroy the statue, and grow 
and become a mountain and fill the whole earth. Daniel 2 verse 44 says, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. And we pray, thy kingdom come. Babylon will be destroyed. Now in, in Revelation, written long after Babylon had fallen, the city of Babylon becomes a type, a representation of a satanic worldly kingdom or system, really. And God would defeat literal Babylon, but that defeat was only a foreshadowing of his ultimate and final defeat of spiritual Babylon. Babylon will fall, and it will be replaced ultimately with the kingdom of God. Now, carrying on the horrible image of the Chaldeans, it says, Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. You're filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you, and utter shame will be on your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will cover you, and the plunder of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood, and the violence of the land and the city, and all who dwell in it. Now the Lord here condemns both the drunk and the one who promotes drunkenness, the one who abuses and the ones who abuse the drinkers. The Babylonians were known among, you know, many, for many reasons, but one of them as they were known as mighty drinkers. When Daniel goes to serve in the courts of the king, it's one of the things he and his friends oppose when he <coughs> drink water. Uh, there were religious reasons for this too, because the feasts were almost always in honor of some pagan deity. Um, but they were not known for being people who drink in moderation. And God knew the Chaldeans were heavy drinkers, and he turns on them and he says, I've got something for you to drink. It's a cup, it's in my right hand, and it will be your shame. Now Jeremiah prophesies a little bit after Habakkuk, okay, during the actual exile, as it's happening. And he expounds on this theme. In Jeremiah 25, 28, it says, Then you shall say to them, this is the Lord speaking to Jeremiah, Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, and vomit. Fall and rise no more, because of the sword that I am sending among you. For behold, I begin to work disaster at the city that is called by my name, and shall you go unpunished? This is Habakkuk's issue, right? It says, if you see the destruction happening in Jerusalem, well, you ain't seen nothing yet. You think that I'm going to leave Babylon after dealing with my people like this? It says, you shall not go unpunished, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. All the inhabitants of the earth. Again, this is bifocal prophecy. We're looking at Babylon, but we're looking past Babylon to something greater. We're looking to an ultimate and final end of all evil that is represented by Babylon. The Chaldeans are greedy. They want more than they should have, and in the end, God will give them more than they can handle. In, in a, the form of a, a conquering force that will bring Babylon to its knees. They're violent, and God will answer this with violence. They're drunkards, and God will give them a drink, the wrath of God. And finally, they're idolaters, trusting in what is silent, speechless, dumb. And Babylon, with all the nations of the earth, will keep silent, just like their idols, before the one true God. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, Arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. 
Babylon was idol central. They had an idol for everything. They worshipped lots and lots and lots of gods. And uh, Psalm 115, verse 8, it says about those who make false gods, it says, those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. And here at the end of the chapter, we see the same truth. The Chaldeans worship what cannot speak. And in the end, they will have to give answer to the God of heaven and they will have no words to justify their actions. Now, I want to tell you how all this pans out. Uh, Babylon, of course, takes over the world. Um, but as an empire, they fall in a single day. The Medes and Persians come through a culvert, essentially, take the city of Babylon, and the whole empire changes hands all at once in an evening. Um, the Babylonians thought their walls could never be breached. They were uh, 80 feet wide, which is pretty significant. They had chariot races around their, their walls, on top of the wall. Like, no one can ever get here, so they just go through the bottom, where the water comes out. And uh, the Medes and Persians come in, and interestingly enough, the victory over Babylon happens while the royalty of Babylon is having a drinking party in honor of their idols. <coughs> Some of the things this chapter in Habakkuk condemns. You can read all about that in Daniel chapter 5, if you want the details. Now again, Habakkuk, he didn't live to see this event, but he got a glimpse of it, a promise of justice. <coughs> The promise of judgment. And the important part is not that Habakkuk saw the future he wanted to see, it's that he was reminded that God knows the future even if he doesn't. Have you ever watched a movie that you've seen before, but you're watching it with someone who hasn't seen it before? They get all the suspense, right? Like all the jump scares, you know, that happens for them. They, they have all the questions, but you're not really quite as worried about the outcome, right? Hopefully you're not sweating it. You know how it ends. <laughs> Habakkuk is seeing what's in front of him. And remember, he's got questions. He's, he is on the edge of his seat. And he's asking, how could this possibly end well? How could any of this possibly end well? Question, was God worried about what Habakkuk was worried about? No. Simple application to this message, if you want another one. Is God worried about what you are worried about? No. No, he is not. You should be like Habakkuk and go to the wall and put yourself in a place to listen and yes, pour out your heart to the Lord and also receive comfort when he says, I've seen this episode. I know how it ends. And at the end, the Lord is in his temple and all the earth is silent before him. You know, funny enough, after God says that there is a day when all of these proud, violent conquerors will be silent before him, Habakkuk goes straight into praise rather than silence. That's chapter 3, that's next week. The justice of God is cause for praise. We can praise him for his justice. Let's praise him because he knows the end from the beginning. And the God who in the beginning said, it is good, will at the end say, it is good. You know, let's praise him for being the one who remains on the throne. Let's praise him and thank him for working all things together according to the counsel of his will and not ours. Even working all things for good for those who love him. Let us walk by this faith, hoping with a hope that doesn't disappoint for the day when the knowledge of God covers the earth as waters cover the seas. Placing all of our confidence in the one who sits on the throne who always has the last word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these hard words. Uh,
We thank you that in the end, you have the last word. We thank you that we can have hope and confidence knowing that a time will come when to speak of the earth, the new heavens and the new earth, uh, will, will be the same thing as to, as to talk about your glory. Just like mentioning the ocean is mentioning water. You can't mention one without the other. But to, to see the earth filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, this is our hope and our destiny. I pray that you would bless your church with the words that were spoken today and that we would be a people, a just people, a justified people, walking and living by faith in the God who knows the end from the beginning. Bless us, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.